was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who had betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back or fell and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Who do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So it's been about three weeks since we have been um, in John's Gospel. Last time we were together, we finished up John chapter 17, which is the great prayer of Jesus. And so somewhere, probably just inside the city walls or just outside the city walls, um, they have stopped to pray. They had left the upper room and they are walking and now they get to the place where they're about to cross the Kidron Valley and move over to um, the Garden of Gethsemane. And so it all begins now. The depth of why Christ came All of the teaching has been amazing and incredible, the miracles. But the reason that He came to die in our place, to bear our sin, is commencing now, and so it begins. John chapter 13 through 17, these chapters were full of love. They had great warmth. There was a tenderness that was in the midst of that. Great truth was spoken. Incredible power as Jesus spoke about things that were to come. But now as we come to John 18, there is a sudden turn of coldness. There's the hardness of the heart that we see from mankind as this chapter is full of betrayal, denial, and the trials of Jesus. Now Jesus is still the the center of everything in John chapter 18 as he has been, but he's just not the object of love anymore. He will be the object of incredible hatred, um, but he's still the centerpiece, and he is the centerpiece of how the lost world views him and how it hates him. We will see what the world does if they have an opportunity to have God before them, how they respond. Now, believers respond differently, obviously, but the world's response is this way. It is clear in John 18 where the world really stands on Jesus. Because at the time, the Jewish and the Gentile views at that time were hostile toward him and wanted to destroy him and do anything that it could do. And so we're going to see real life moments in the weeks to come, how the apostles respond to what happens to Jesus. 
um, as they stand before the cross later, John and, and Jesus' earthly mother um, and the other women watching him die on the cross. And so we will see a number of different ways in which people respond to stress and, and trial and lack of understanding of what's happening in the moment with someone that they deeply love. Now I want to begin today and I want to talk about how do we view evil? Because we're going to see the personification of evil as it is directed toward Christ in John 18. The human heart, again, left to its own devices, will respond and does respond ultimately to God this way. There are two views in regard to evil that people try to explain in regard to why does evil come? Why is it present? We know from Genesis chapter 3 what is present there as Satan enters the garden and begins to um, bring temptation. And so I want to I just talk for a moment as we begin this morning about how we as Christ followers can come to understand better the nature of God in light of evil. And I want to talk about two things, one in which we embrace here at the church, and secondly, um, one that has become more popular uh, in more recent days. And um, Becky, you can go and put those up there. There are two main perspectives when you talk about evil. And one is um, open theism. And I'll talk about that just for a moment. Um, You can write these down. Um, They're not real difficult. And then the sovereignty of God. Let me talk about open theism for a moment. This teaching says that God ultimately, in a sense, doesn't have anything to do um, with the trials that come into our lives because he is like us in a sense that he doesn't know the future. And so this is what this teaching is there. And so since he doesn't know the future, there's ultimately not really anything that he can do to intervene when things are coming our way. He feels our pain, but it was a surprise to him as well. Some who embrace this use it to try to teach an understanding or try to try to answer the question, what do we do with um, with evil and suffering to come to an answer to that? And so what is talked about in this is they say that since man has the ability to choose, which man, by the way, does have the ability to choose. We have freedom of choice. We're not robots. We are choosing. And so they say um, that because we have the ability to choose and can choose things that God ultimately does not fully know, this view therefore affirms that God, listen to this, is then reacting to the world and reacting to the things that we are choosing. So in a sense, it puts us more at the powerful aspect of things and controlling of things. That view, um, I think, affirms a God who is weak and at the whims of mankind and man's decisions and the things that man decides to do. His lack of knowledge... um, uh, indicates that he can't really fully intervene because he doesn't really know what is happening and coming. Secondly, this view puts man at the center of things, more at the center of the world instead of a God-centered world and sovereign sovereignty of God kind of world. Man is more at the center. And thirdly, it removes, I think in a sense, the personal nature of Jesus of being involved in the things that are going on in our lives. And so this is, if you've not heard of this before, this is become fairly popular um, in this modern time over the last 20 years, um, the teaching and affirmation of this. Um, By the way, um, you don't find any examples of this 
in the scripture where God is surprised about things and he is uncertain about the future. So we believe that God has a purpose and a plan and God is moving that purpose and plan regardless of man's choices. That God has established the world to be a God-centered world. It is his world. And so therefore, regardless of what man chooses, what governments do, um, who's in power, what war is taking place, what viewpoint, what religion, what philosophy, whatever the case may be that's out there, God is ultimately sovereign and in control over everything. So this is what we embrace here, that God is sovereign and nothing catches God ever off guard or by surprise. God is not responsible for evil in the world. Evil takes place because of Satan and the wickedness of of the human heart. And we see that all the way. And by the way, those who embrace the sovereignty of God also affirm that man chooses. We choose all the time. But God is in control ultimately of everything. Now, there are many examples of this in the scripture. Let me just remind us of some of those. Joseph in the Old Testament. God knew Joseph's brothers would come to eventually bow before him in Egypt well before they sold him into slavery. So God knew what was going to happen and take place with Joseph, and it was revealed to Joseph in a dream. King David, God knew that David would eventually be anointed king even even while Saul was remaining king. Um, He told Samuel, this is the one, and Samuel um, went and anointed David as king. God told Judah that eventually, because of their sin, that they were going to be sent away. You may remember for how many years? Seventy years they would be sent away. God knew this. This was part of the purpose and part of the punishment that was going to be there. God knew that, told it through the prophets. The prophets told the nation. We just got through, we've just finished um, several weeks ago reading the book of Hosea uh, in the W4. Um, God told through the northern kingdom prophets that the northern kingdom, those ten tribes would go away. Assyria would come in. God told this is exactly what would happen and this is exactly what did happen. All of the prophets from Moses to Malachi wrote of Jesus' coming. Hundreds of prophecies that were written hundreds of years and sometimes thousands of years before Christ came, and they all came true. John the Baptist says, as the Baptist says, there's a silence in regard to um, prophets and, and uh, writing and inspiration of Scripture. Um, he's told at the, at the, at the Hulk of Malachi that he would be coming. You open up the New Testament pages. Guess what happened? What was predicted came true. John the Baptist was there, a messenger preparing the way for Jesus. The book of Revelation is one. It is sovereign over all things, and he is moving things along. Moving things along. He does know the future, and he revealed it to John. So there are multiple perspectives of this. And as I wanted to deal with this this morning because if we come to this and we come to this, and we, it's incredibly tragic what we're going to behold. How the world ultimately responds to, its, responds to its, the world and the one that came to lay his life down. And so we're going to see the reality that Jesus is not surprised by any of the things that are any of the things. He read the Old Testament scriptures that were about him. He knew Isaiah 53. He knew what would happen to him. It was foretold. And so again, again, I do not know things. How, how secure should we feel today if he's not sovereign in control of things? Not very secure. 
if we're in control and the world is based on God always reacting to man's decisions and reacting to governments and reacting to new religions, then man is driving this, and that's not what the Scripture teaches. This is a revelation of God. Yes, it reveals much about us, but it is a revelation of God that God is sovereign and God is in control of things. And so everything that we and so everything that we, this is not a surprise to Jesus. This was purposed by the Father for the Son to come and do this. So let's read verses 1 and 2. And I want to talk about, first of all, this morning, the practice of consistent fellowship. Read with me again in 1 and 2. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So let me talk about the setting. The brook Kidron is interesting. When I was 12 years old, I went on a Holy Land tour with my grandparents. I was 12 and I went with a bunch of Seven, seven. So I had a great time, fell in love with those people as they loved on me. But we went to this, this place here and described it. And our guy talked about that this probably was a place that Jesus likely walked across this and went into the Garden of Gethsemane. I wasn't a believer at the time, uh, but, but I was fascinated standing there where I'm thinking, thinking about all the sermons that I'd heard in my lifetime about Jesus that he likely possibly was there walking across this place. A number of interesting things happened at the Brook Kidron. It's where David crossed it when his son Absalom rebelled and David was having to flee from the city. Um, that's where uh, David went across. Interesting, da- Jesus, a descendant of David, many pictures of Jesus from the life of David. David fleeing from his family and friends who were after him. Here's Jesus walking out of the city for the last time to go across um, as he will be betrayed by his people. In Second Chronicles fifteen sixteen, um, King Asa, his mom, had built an Asherah pole. He, had take, he took, it, took it down to the Kidron Valley there and uh, destroyed it, burned it, crushed it to pieces that was there. And then Josiah took many of the idols while he became king down to the Kidron Valley and crushed the idols that were there. And so just across that... They crossed that. There was a garden that we know as the Garden of Gethsemane. So let's talk about Gethsemane just for a moment. It's on the western side of the Mount of Olives. It's not really known. Was it a public space that everybody could come to or was it privately owned back in the day? We just don't know anything about that. And Jesus may have had a relationship with the owner who allowed him to come in whenever he needed rest or whatever the case may be. We don't really know um, what, what, what the case was. Was it just a public place or was it privately owned? But we do know this, that the Lord um, spent quite a bit of time there as John writes in verse 2 there. As we begin to speak about the Garden of Gethsemane, I want to remind us this morning that in the first garden, Adam and Eve were there and it's where humanity fell into sin by disobeying and rebelling against God's nature and God's word. It will be in this garden just outside the city of Jerusalem, where the Son of God will battle on this night. He will pray. He will sweat drops of blood. And he will succeed in the darkness of the hour as he pleads with his Father in regard to what he is about to do. He will gain victory over the enemy in the garden as he prays and he submits his will to the purpose of the Father. 
Let him remind us what he says on this night. Luke says in Luke twenty-two forty-two, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. I want you to, I want you to listen to how intense this battle that is taking place in this garden. There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. So earnestly, it says, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. In Gethsemane, Christ opened himself fully to the Father and said yes. In the Garden of Eden, man closed himself off from God and said, No, God, I want to be God and I want to be in control. So here we have the second Adam pleading with his Father, obeying his Father on our behalf. This is why, by the way, Jesus is so important to your life and my life. He's the one who said yes to the Father. Never said no to the Father, ever. The sinless one, the righteous one, the perfect one. And because of that reality, He is the one that we must learn about, must deeply connect our life with. And so it is in this garden that Jesus prays. Look at verse 2 again. So now Judas had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. It is clear from the text that this was a common practice when they were in and around Jerusalem that Jesus and the twelve would go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, Likely to get away from the crowds, likely to get away from the pressure from the religious leaders because that was been pretty consistent. Going all the way back to John chapter 5 that Jesus and in Jerusalem... And the religious leaders, um, many battles, many conversations, many things where they challenge him and he speaks truth to them. So they probably went here for rest. It was probably a time of teaching, time of fellowship, a break from the crowds. And if you remember, Jesus had no home. He didn't have a place. And so it seems clear that on this night, even though it was within walking distance of his good friends, Lazarus and Mary and Martha, who lived in Bethany, just a... Um, just probably about a mile away from this is where um, they were. He doesn't go there on this night, likely for this reason, that it would bring trouble to his friends, knowing what Judas was going to do to find. So he goes to a place that Judas knows where Jesus is going to be because it was a consistent practice when they came to Jerusalem. That's where they were. So on this Thursday night before Passover, they walked in the dark, likely passed people on their way outside of the city, crossed the Kidron Valley, walked up it, and came to the Garden of Gethsemane, likely for two reasons. One, one last time before everything really commenced for Jesus to pray intimately and spend time with his Father. Secondly, because God is sovereign, Jesus knew that Judas would know where he would be. As a matter of fact, we know this, that the last week, this last week, Passion Week, he would wake up in the morning, he would go into the temple and he would teach. And it tells us that at night they would go out to the Garden of Gethsemane and they would sleep out there at night. So Judas knew where he would find Jesus on this night. This is what Luke 21, 37 says. Every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. By the way, note that Jesus does not avoid the place that he knows that Judas knows that he will be. He goes exactly why. Because every step of the way, what is he doing? He's obeying the Father. Every aspect of it. Let me remind you of what Jesus said earlier. 
because it's still happening on this night as we walk through this text. John 5, 19. The son can only do what he sees his father doing. And what the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. So what's Jesus doing on this night? What's the father doing? The father is actively leading him to go to the garden of Gethsemane. Why? Because the purpose from which all of this is going to happen and take place is commencing. It is happening and taking place. And so the Father is leading him to the Garden of Gethsemane where Judas will come with a band of soldiers and religious soldiers from the, from the Jews. And he doesn't avoid it. He doesn't delay it. He embraces it. He goes to it. Incredible obedience of Christ to follow through. Let's talk about Judas a couple more times. I'm kind of tired of talking about the the rebellious one, but there's lessons to learn from him. So this sly, fake apostle had left the room in his great insincerity. He had gone to the religious leaders. He had got his money. He had insider information to where he knew exactly where Jesus would be. And when we look at Judas, we see that when the heart is under the control of the enemy, when the heart is under the control of ourselves and we are guiding ourselves, and you are not redeemed, the heart will do anything. Even betray the Lord with a kiss. There was nothing in Judas along the way that stopped him from saying, hey, you ought to reconsider this. He just was intent in going and doing what he was going to do and commit the greatest treachery of all treacheries. He has had three years of walking and listening to Jesus. He has even been called an apostle. He has an identity connected with the twelve, but he doesn't know that salvation is found in Jesus alone. Jesus has just been a means to an end for Judas. Judas wants Jesus to rise up, overthrow Rome, and establish Israel again. Even though he has all these positive things in his life to allow him to understand who Christ is and that he needed to bow his life before Christ, none of those were enough to assure that salvation, he was not going to bow his knee to the Lordship of Christ. Now I want to talk about one more thing and then we're going to move on. I want you to note the last words of verse 2. Will you look with me again there? For Jesus often met there with his disciples. What does that tell us? What does it teach us? Very insightful and I think important for us to consider this morning. There was a consistency in Jesus' life to meet together for fellowship. It was just not playing disc golf or ball golf or, I don't know, volleyball or whatever, the, whatever we do. They get together and do things. They consistently met together for fellowship and prayer and teaching. As a matter of fact, we get um, unique insight in the four Gospels of this practice of Jesus of meeting together. And so I want to share a few of those with us this morning. This is Mark one thirty-five. So here we have this in John 18, um, that we learn that Jesus often met there. There was a consistency with this. Here's Mark 135. In rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Luke 6:12. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Matthew 14, 23. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. 
early on in Luke chapter 4, verse 16, we learn of another consistent practice that was in Jesus' life. Luke 4, 16, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom. You understand what that means, right? This is what he did. This is what he practiced. As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. I just want to remind you and I this morning that we ought to have a garden place that we get alone with others for fellowship, encouragement. So that could be a life group. That could be a consistent practice of drinking coffee at a coffee shop and talking about the scripture and sharing life with one another. There ought to be a garden place in our life. Sometimes where we're alone in that moment and then sometimes we're with other people. There is to be our great model, the only real true model that we have, while he was here, lived a disciplined life. There were customs as a part of his life. The Garden of Gethsemane and meeting there was one of those. Going to the synagogue every Sabbath day and gathering with God's people to listen to the scripture read was a consistent practice of Jesus. And so here's Jesus going to the place that he knows Judas is going to be there. The father is leading him there. And so he goes to this place. Look in verse 3 now. Let's talk about the second thing. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So I did some research this week. How big could a band of soldiers be? within the Roman army. It could be up to 600 soldiers. Now, sometimes it could be less than that, but that's the maximum amount that would be would be 600 soldiers. So when, they, when John uses the phrase here, band of soldiers, John would have been acquainted with, with that reality. So here's probably what happened. So the religious leaders have worked with Rome. Okay, we want to get rid of this guy. Um, They've agreed that it's, that it's okay to arrest him and the religious leaders are there. So they go to some Roman leader and he sends a band of soldiers. Let's say it's not 600. Let's say it's 200. We're, just, we're guessing. So not only is it some band of soldiers from Rome, but there's also some soldiers that are connected to the synagogue that are sent with the religious leaders. Likely what is happening here is they know how popular Jesus is with the people. And they're expecting potentially that there's going to be a skirmish in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so they want to be ready. So they want to make sure with a band of soldiers that they're sending enough to be able to deal with this, to be able to arrest Jesus. And I love what Jesus does here. We're going to talk more about it in just a moment. Again, he doesn't hide behind a tree. He just steps out and says, hey, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I'm him. I'm the one. He steps forward to make it clear. So they came searching, by the way. I laugh at this. You can laugh with me if you want. You may not think it's funny. They've come to arrest the light of the world with lanterns and torches. And he's not hiding in the darkness. He's there, and he's going to make himself known. There has always been... I remind us, pressure against Christians for the last 2,000 years by governments. And they'll use the police, they'll use armies, 
They'll use the law. They'll use a court system to come after God's people. Jesus earlier in John chapter 15 has said that this is going to be the case. The world's going to hate you. You need to keep in mind it's going to hate you because it hated me first. This is just the reality. And then you get to John chapter 16 and he tells the 11 um, on the back end of that, he tells them, listen, in the days ahead, you're going to be arrested. You're going to be brought before rulers. They're going to they're, they're going to charge you. There's going to be things there. You're going to be persecuted. They're going to want to kill you and get rid of you because they think if they can get rid of you that the world will be a better place. And so he's been letting them know this has happened. This has been happening for the last 2,000 years. It is happening today on this planet right now as we sit in this room. In some parts of the world, Christians are under extreme pressure from bands of soldiers, from courts, from liars, and from people who are confused about things. So some officers with the chief priests come as well. It's interesting. They bring, let's say, 250 people to come get Jesus. Little did they know he was going to go willingly. He wasn't going to fight. This is why he came. He was going to agree, and he will submit in a moment and allow him to be arrested. Do you not think he who spoke the world into existence could have dealt with 250 soldiers in the Garden of Gethsemane? He will submit his will to the purpose of the Father and for our good so that we would have salvation through him. They never welcomed him. It's sad in a sense that things have ended up this way that the religious leaders are involved in this, and they, they never, never fully embraced him. There were just a very small few who believed. We know Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, and there's another place that gave indication that some believed, but they were fearful, and so they wouldn't come out in the open to confess. And the reason is they felt threatened by Jesus. He threatened their system that was built on lies, and they had such great pride that they never would have humility before him. And the third thing is just this, is they really didn't understand the scriptures because the scripture's purpose of the Old Testament was to point to Jesus. And there he is right in front of them. And they want to kill him. They could only, they couldn't embrace what John the Baptist said. I am not even worthy to untie his sandal. And what they said to Jesus was that that man is possessed by Beelzebul, by Satan, himself, and they mocked him. One more thing about Judas. He trades so much on this night. He had so many positive things. You remember back in John 13, Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, and they're all looking around the room, and not a one of them thought that Judas would be the one who would be willing to do it. They looked around the room, they couldn't, they couldn't imagine that it would be Judas. See, Judas had, note this, Judas had 11 brothers in his life that loved him. And in that moment, earlier in the night, couldn't fathom that Judas would be the one. But Judas traded it all in. He traded an, an, a relationship with Christ and of being around Christ. He traded this relationship that he had with his brothers and just threw it all away. So I remind us that the powerful 
will always, until Christ comes back and establishes his kingdom, they will exert pressure upon God's people. Are we not seeing more conversation, even in our country today, about restrictions and about speech and about what can be said about certain things? This has just been the way that it's been. And Jesus is the model for us to understand that. Let's look at the third thing. This is so awesome. I want to talk about the powerful presence of the divine and when he speaks. Look at verse 4 through 6. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus said to him, I am he. And Judas, who was betrayed, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Note what Jesus does here. He spoke about this in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, love your enemies. What does he do in the garden here? He steps out and greets his enemies as they come to arrest them. him. He didn't shy away from the hour and the moment. Uh, John doesn't indicate it here. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, already those Gospels had been around for about three decades by the time John wrote his Gospel at the end of the first century. And so John gives us a little bit more insight. He doesn't repeat some of the things that those other three Gospels. And so here's what Mark records for us. Somewhere in the midst of this, this took place, Mark 14, 43. And immediately while he was speaking, likely when Jesus said, I am he, somewhere around in there um, at this point, It says, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and at once said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. There is a deep trust that Jesus has and that you and I can have when we fully are trusting in God's word, in God's purpose, in God's plan, with full knowledge of everything that's about to take place. Again, he had read Isaiah 53. He knew that he is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53. He knew all the things that would happen and take place on this night. And so here he is with full knowledge. He steps forward and he says, I am he. He steps forward to say, I am the one who is the object of your search. And oh, is there so much more connected to that. I am he. I'm the one you're looking for. He, had, he places, God does, eternity in the hearts of every person. Ecclesiastes 3.11. And yet man doesn't know what to do about this eternity, this reality that we are meant to live forever. And doesn't know what to do with it. And on this night, the, the soldiers have no idea what's about to happen and take place. Obviously, the Jewish guard that have come, they don't really know the significance that is happening here. And when he said, I am he, everybody fell down in the garden. I read one popular theologian was a little surprised that they said this, that this really wasn't a supernatural event that happened when they fell down on the ground, and I can't imagine how it's not a supernatural event. Think about this. One single man saying, I am he, and 250 trained army soldiers fall down on the ground. 
You see, when the divine comes into a place and speaks, it is powerful. It is transformative. It is wondrous. So possibly hundreds of trained soldiers all falling back on the ground before one single man. This was not just Jesus of Nazareth. They were standing in the presence of the sovereign Lord of the universe. And his presence brought in awe that overwhelmed hundreds of people on this night as they fell down. So again, I want to come back to Judas for a moment. What happened to Judas when this happened? Only two possibilities. One is he fell down as well. As Jesus said, I am he, that he went down exactly, fell back exactly like the soldiers. Or the other possibility is this, is that everybody fell down and he remained standing, making it clear who the betrayer of the Lord is. We don't really know what happened, but one of those two. But the event in the garden also reveals this, what I go back to that I shared in the, in the beginning about open theism and the sovereignty of God. This event in the garden reveals to us that Christ was not caught up in the midst of those who hated him. His life was in the hands of the Father. He wasn't at the hands of Judas's betrayal. His life was in the hands of the Father. And tragically, this supernatural event that takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane seems to have no effect on anybody. Now, if you know there, um, they fell down. And now let's go to the next thing. Look at 7 through 9. And he's going to say, I am he again. Verse 7. And let's talk about the promises that will be fulfilled here. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. And I wonder right there if people are like, okay, I'm bracing again for the I am he. Because when he said that last time, he said, look, I am he. And then he says to them, so if you seek me, let these men go. And this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Let's talk about this just for a moment. Again, I note that Jesus here does not fight the reason why they come for him in the garden. He is going to submit to the very reason in which they have come to him on this night. So let me remind us, I've mentioned it a couple of times, let me remind us of Isaiah 53, 7. He was, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and yet he opened on his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He didn't call for any lawyers in the moment. He didn't look at Judas and scold him and say, you disgust me. Again, why? Because he's not in the hand of the soldiers. They're not in control of this. Judas is not in control of this night. The Father has led him here to this place. He is confident, trusting, because the promises, it's there. The promises are there that the word is going to be fulfilled on this night. And so he's trusting. His confidence is not in men. His confidence is in the Father and that the Father has spoken. And so again, he didn't tweet out something 
didn't cry out about the injustice of it all. He just willingly submits to this. And I love what he does in verse 9. Don't miss this. Sometimes we, we read these, the narrative part of things, and we're like, is there any deep truth in there? Yes, anytime Jesus acts, there's deep truth. I want you to note this. He is ever their shepherd, ever leading them, ever caring for them. So look at verse 8. Jesus answered, I told you that I'm he. So if you seek me, you let these men go. He speaks here on behalf of the 11 and for their safety. These men will take the gospel all over the world. They're not going to die this night. Now they're going to be worried in just a moment. They're all going to run away and they are going to flee, but they're not going to die right now. But one last time, he's going to speak on their behalf to the authorities. It's the very last time that he will do this physically. In the future, he will be with them spiritually as they stand before leaders. So here is Jesus still shepherding them in these last moments as he speaks for their security and provision in the moment. By the way, he does this to us as well. We are never without him leading, guiding, protecting, being with us, being present, guiding us, leading us, feeding us, taking care of us. This is who Jesus is. He doesn't speak in this moment for his own freedom, nor does he fight for his own freedom but he does so on their behalf. Let these men go. Again, in a few moments, they're going to flee from him, but he has given them one last example to show them, men, this is what you're going to face in the days ahead, and this is how you need to respond when you face these things. So he will speak to them and say, take me only. I'm the one who you want. There will be. No. Let me back that sentence up. There will never be a moment in our life that God is not shepherding his people. Not a moment. Some of us are going through some really deep stuff right now. Some of us will go through deep stuff in the days ahead. And I just remind you and I that there is not a moment that God is not shepherding his people. That he will not be present. He will not be speaking on our behalf. That he will be shocked and surprised at something. But he will be intimate in the moment, holding us and sustaining us. Verse 9 says, This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. He didn't lose any of them. Judas was never a part of this. He never believed. And so the 11 believed. He didn't lose a single one of them. Um, for that verse to be true, that, that's the only answer to the reality of what that means. Now look at 10 through 11 as we finish up. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So let me note something that you may have noticed before if you've read the Gospels much. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention Peter's name and don't mention Malchus's name. It's only John that mentions Peter and Malchus. That's where we get the insight to, to this. Why? Well, it's possible that when the, those other three Gospels were written, 
Peter was still alive and Malchus was still alive. And it could have caused problems for Malchus with some Christians because he was there to come to arrest Jesus or it could have caused issues with Peter knowing that um, he's the one who tried to cut off the high priest or tried to kill, really tried to kill the um, high priest's servant um, on this night. Um, let, me, let me note this and make sure. We're not sure why he has a sword this night. There is an interesting conversation that takes place in Luke chapter 22 about swords that Jesus has um, uh, with, with them. Um, but he's got a sword in the garden, and he's not aiming. I don't know how you aim to just cut an ear off, to be honest. I guess the, I don't think Peter was the, you know, a samurai swordsman. He, he was like, okay, time to fight. So he pulls out a sword, and he's going to try and kill Malchus and rescue Jesus. Let me remind us of something. Jesus doesn't need our protection. Now, we want to stand and we want to speak for him, but he's done okay and will do okay for all of eternity. And so Peter gets lost perspective here. And I remind us this morning that we must remember that our weapons are spiritual in nature, not physical in nature. Um, our, our warfare that we, we face and that we wage is a spiritual warfare. Paul said that. Let me just remind us 2 Corinthians 10, 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So we destroy strongholds in every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So what's Peter doing? He's doing what we do sometimes. What has Jesus been telling them for months? He's going to Jerusalem for what? What's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem? He's going to be arrested. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to get into the hands of the religious leaders and they're going to kill him. And yet he will rise on the third day. He's been telling them over and over. So he's got the words. He's heard them. He's got the knowledge. He could probably regurgitate it. He's heard it so much. But in the moment, his zeal takes over from what he should know. And we can be that way. Sometimes we get so passionate that we don't think. And this is Peter in the moment. He's like, I've got to stop this moment. And Jesus is like, no, stop that. There's not time for that. This is why I came. And he says there, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has for me? So Peter, put that away. We're not going to do that right now. We're not going to be about that. And so he's zealous for Jesus, but without the right knowledge. Paul wrote, Paul wrote about that in the book of Romans about the Jews, that they had a zealousness and a passion for God, but it was misinformed because they rejected Jesus. Paul writes about his zealousness in the book of Galatians chapter 1, where he writes about how he was a passionate persecutor of the church, and then Jesus opened his eyes and he realized, oh, my passion was not grounded and the right knowledge. And isn't that the case with us? That when, when Christ does open our eyes, we see right and we adjust. And that's what happened and took place with Paul. A couple more things. Talk about Malchus for a second. Why is his name mentioned here? I don't know. Fully. Leads you to wonder. 
that he think through this night. Because I want you to I want you to know what happens that tells us this, that Jesus takes the ear and puts it on his head and reattaches it and it's healed. And again, Jesus shepherding speaks on behalf of Peter and says and kind of diffuses the situation and and just reminds them, I'm the one that you're looking for and Peter's not arrested because what he just did would be an arrestable offense. And so Jesus again in the moment here calms down this. And so the tender grace of Jesus Though Peter's zealousness in the moment is off base, Jesus does two unique, tender things. Malchus has come as an enemy of Christ. He's wrongly lost his ear. He's following orders to come, and he's healed anyway. And secondly, Jesus in the moment tenderly protects Peter from being arrested. And so let's move from Peter just for a moment to Jesus. Jesus says, will I not drink? the cup that the Father has given me. He did not need Peter fighting for something not to happen that absolutely must happen. And so I remind you and I of this, that we, of this, we, you and I need to be wise in the battles in which we wage and we fight for to make sure that the reason we fight for these things, that there's a foundation of Scripture that is there. Because sometimes we can have a zealousness that is not connected really to the Scripture. We're just zealous about something. And the foundation we need to stand on. So here's Peter standing on, I'm not going to let this happen, but this is the purpose of why which Christ came, is that he would be arrested and betrayed and go to the cross. So Jesus here, confident, trusts in the Father, in this moment. Let's close with this. 12 through 14. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews back in John eleven forty-nine 49, um, that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. And I want you to note this as we finish the text. Here is the almighty God who's never had a beginning and will never have an end, who spoke the world into existence, who Hebrews 1 says, upholds the world by the word of his power. Right now, that's what he's doing. Why is the world not disintegrating? Because Jesus is upholding the world right now. So here is the almighty God, so powerful, so holy, so righteous. What does he do in the moment? As he submits to the Father, he submits to evil people who have come to carry out the task for which he came. The meekness of Jesus is amazing. He has so much strength in this moment. So much strength in this moment. And yet it's under control as he submits to the Father that he is to be arrested and he is to go to the cross. So I want to close just with a couple of thoughts about what do we do with this text this morning. What are some practical lessons that we can take away as we leave today and head into our week and head into our life that should be a part of our lives? Here's the first one. If you're taking notes, these aren't on the screen. Here's the first one. You and I must look at Jesus 
And we must practice and live like He did while He was here. We must make it our practice to find places of fellowship and worship. Not every now and then, but it must be a practice of ours where we are connected in community, studying the Bible, coming together with the people of God. This is what Jesus did. This is what He practiced. Relying on the Father, having community, studying the Word, gathering together, going to the synagogue as was His custom. We must make it our practice as well. Secondly, our passion for Christ must be grounded in biblical knowledge. Not self-knowledge, not the latest trends knowledge, unless that trend is biblical. But our passion for Jesus must be grounded in knowledge. In other words, here's how I describe it. If we're going to stand strong and be passionate, there must be something to stand upon that's clear in regard to the Scripture. That our zealousness is grounded in something that is true that the Scripture strongly affirms, not just a feeling that we have or desire that we have. And so, our, again, on this night, Jesus has been telling them, this is what is going to happen. He's even told them, on this night, one of you is going to betray me. And as it unfolds before Peter's eyes, he pulls out a sword and is like, no, I'm going to stop this. And so his passion gets in the way of what Jesus has been telling him. And this is important for us in our lives as well. Here's a third thing that we can take away. We are to be, as our Lord, courageously following the will of God for our lives. No matter the cost, no matter the sacrifice, Again, Jesus said what the Father does, where He goes, what He says. He's told me what to say, and He's told me what to do, and I will be about that. We must be that as well. That must be a practical thing. We must be as Christ is. Again, on this night, He doesn't avoid the moments. Hearing them coming, they're coming with torches. He steps forward. Who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Well, that's me. He courageously steps forward and lets it be known who he is. Fourthly, his word should bring us to our knees. As Jesus says, I am he, and the soldiers fall to the ground, you and I as God's people, we must bend the knee. There must be the practice of bending the knee. So when we come in here, we're not entering in here going, oh, I know all this. Or we have some kind of Whatever the case may be, we must always be willing, Lord, open my eyes, open my ears to your truth that I can see what's there and and to yield to the word that has come to us. Is this not amazing that this has come to us? This has come to us, God's heart and ink, his very nature, his revelation of himself has come to us. And so we come. And we bow. We bow before His nature. and We bow before His Word. Here's the last practical thing. Everybody, can we agree that this afternoon is uncertain for all of us? Totally uncertain. Okay. It'll probably go normal. But life is just uncertain. We've learned that in the last... Two years. 
very, very, very uncertain. So I want to remind us that when those moments pop up that are so uncertain and we're not ready for them, I want to remind us that our lives, if you are a child of God, your life is not in the hands of that circumstance. Your life is in the hands of he who holds you, who is Jesus and the Father and the Spirit who has sealed our lives and our salvation. So, though Judas would betray, Jesus' life is not in the hands of Judas. Though hundreds of soldiers have come to arrest Jesus, and though they will do things physically to him, his life is not in their hands. His life is in the Father's hands. And I remind us as well that we, our lives are in his hands. So think about this night. Judas, Roman and Jewish guards, Peter, religious leaders, the crowd the next day that shouts, we'd rather have Barabbas than Jesus. He's going to have a long conversation with Pilate in John chapter 19. Jesus' life is not in the hands of Pilate. His, his, his life is in the hands of the Father. And we must ever remember that. That as His people, the world can rage, but we belong to God. Is that not great news today? We belong to Him. John 10, we are in Jesus' hand. We are in the Father's hand. Paul's writings, we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. And so we have great, great security today. And there will be circumstances that will be out of our control, but not out of His control, ever will they be out of His control. And so Jesus on this night teaches us that our lives are in God's charge, in God's power, and He can be trusted. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.